This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Otessa Moshfeg is here to talk about Lepvona, her new novel, which is a little bit of a, I suppose it, I should describe it as a little bit of a departure because it is set in an unnamed country in an unnamed time that feels very sort of medieval. And it has some fantasy elements. So can we talk about Lepvona? Can we talk about how this book started for you? This book started uh, years before I even knew that it was a novel set in a, uh, you know, Middle Ages time frame in a fiefdom somewhere in Eastern Europe, maybe. It was way even more vague than that. <laughs> and the the seed of the story was really the main character's premise. Marek, this teenage adolescent slash teenage boy, kills another boy who happens to be the son of the family that governs Lapvona, uh, the place in which everyone in this book lives. And as punishment slash retribution, William the father of this dead boy, takes Marek, the murderer, in as his own son. And um, that, that exchange was the story premise that I had in my head for like two years before I started mm-hmm. that. Bona. And I was like, what is this? I'm interested in, in the experience of this boy having to fill in for the boy he killed. And I'm interested in a family that would do that. It just kind of sat there in my mind. I thought maybe this is a story about the mob, like literally about mafia to answer the question, why wouldn't they just go to the police? Well, okay. You know, there are a lot of reasons that you could think of, but I was like, okay, well, maybe there's this family has something to hide. And then I was like, well, I don't think that the boy who kills the other boy is really a murderer per se. Mm -hmm. It's not that he went out with murderous intent. There was some kind of perfect accident, you know? So I had that question, like, what, what are the circumstances of this killing? I had kind of forgotten about it um, in the mix of COVID-19, our entire world shifting, my entire world shifting inside my house. It was like 2019, nothing. 2020 lockdown. Mm -hmm. Oh, crap. In order to survive this psychologically and spiritually, I needed a project to fill in the container of space that this pandemic had suddenly created for me because, well, I had been working on some movies. Everything kind of got delayed, switched around because of the pandemic. Suddenly, you know, things weren't, my my life didn't look the way it used to look. And um, I needed a creative project. And I also felt like, well, this is exactly what you do when something like this happens. You respond creatively so that this moment can exist in history. And so maybe I was thinking about history. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was also thinking about isolation in the way that, um, you know, a community can be so isolated 
and within an isolated universe, belief systems can get very strange. Oh, yes. And they do in Lapvona. They really, really do. Can we talk about Mark for a second, though? Because he really is, he's got an awful lot of sanctimony for someone we first meet as a 13-year-old. He's an odd one. And, you know, if I had to say, like, who who do you relate to the most in this book? And this book has a lot of characters. Mm -hmm. I would say Mark is one of the ones that I felt like the closest to, mm-hmm. um, partially because I feel like I'm just stuck in adolescence in a lot of ways. One of Marek's defining characteristics is the deformed way in which his body has grown. Mm-hmm. And I also have that deformity. Um, and it was, you know, very confusing for me as a young teenager to ask myself, like, why am I growing wrong? When I'm asking myself that question, I can see that the ego would want to respond in some different ways. Well, either I'm terrible, you know, there's something terribly wrong with me, or I'm special. I must have a special role in the universe, you know? And anyway, so I kind of projected that onto Mark Mm -hmm. and gave him a very different life Mm -hmm. than my life. I don't think that um, sanctimoniousness is something that comes with age per se. You know, I think like I've met some very sanctimonious Mm -hmm. Mm five-year-olds and um, Marek is, you know, very devout in certain ways and similar to the delusion that William, the Lord, suffers from, Marek also has the ability to convince himself of certain truths Mm -hmm. and he uses spiritual principles to do that. So I was like, interested in how young people are susceptible to their imaginations as well as you know what stories they're hearing from people in places of authority like his father and mark's father jude is a deeply unpleasant guy i think he does love his son but doesn't know what to do with him mark's mother is we are told dead mm-hmm. and they have a really rough life. Jude is the shepherd of this village and they are facing a catastrophic drought, but also mis- really terrible mismanagement by <laughs> Wilhelm, who is just a really corrupt, corrupt guy. So I feel like we're sitting in territory that you've looked at before in earlier books where we're seeing, you know, decay and difficulty. And this isolation, everyone is isolated in this world. Even all of the people who share Wilhelm's fancy house, including Marek later on, they're all isolated. They're all operating in these tiny, tiny pieces of the world. So how are you as the writer navigating this? I mean, obviously you have this fantastic idea. You start out, you're working on it for two years, but where do you go from the idea? Is it the cast that's showing up? Is it more of Marek first and then these other characters coming in. We've also got Father Barnabas that we'll get to at some point, but I think it had a lot to do with just imagining the world that might be mm-hmm. and finding these people who are very much individuals, letting them play out their own stories in response to what was happening in their very isolated world. 
I mean, I think the cool thing about writing fiction about contained communities is that it, it does lend itself very easily to the genres of like fable, right? Or, you know, in the ways that we think about more like biblical stories. Every single member of the family uh, in a community is an archetype in some way. And so I was sort of looking at the archetypes and just being like, well, what's my version of that? You know, um, what's the most interesting way to look at an archetype, archetypical person playing a role in a community, but getting so close that the cliche of them becomes twisted. And then I can actually see them as a real human um, and maybe even sometimes more than human. Which brings us to Ina, who is the former wet nurse for basically everyone in this community. But also she's got her own sort of story happening and she feels like she started as exactly what you described, a, a kind of archetype and then became this sort of very grounded character. Can we talk about her creation and and how you found her? Well, I felt like from the beginning, Ina was a very powerful source. I met her the same way we meet her on a typical day in Mark's life where he goes to Ina's house um, for some comfort. And I thought about, you know, this woman's role as the wet nurse, a, a woman who's a wet nurse, but whose milk has dried up. You know, what would her function still be? And like, okay, so Marek and she have a relationship of some sort. And then I was just really interested in how uh, a woman who has made a living off of the functions of her femininity, you could say, Mm -hmm. um, what would be the most unexpected person to play that role? And I thought, well, okay, number one, she must have a really interesting way of looking at maternity. And I was like, okay, what if she's not a mother at all? What if she doesn't even like motherhood, like as a concept? Her story became this sort of parable of how this woman develops almost supernatural powers um, based on her being rejected from society and having to live among the birds in the Mm -hmm. woods. She's a woman of nature, but a woman who uses the wisdom of nature uh, for her own selfish ends, you could say. Did you know where Mark was going as you were writing or, or were there moments that surprised you in his development? Because I wasn't quite expecting him to take to Wilhelm so quickly and suddenly start saying, well, you know, all of the things that I thought were true in my life before this moment are not in fact true. Well, I mean, a lot happens to Marek mm-hmm. and he adapts. I mean, that's one one thing. I mean, if you accidentally killed someone and then you had to go fill their role in the family that they came from, you're either going to go crazy, commit suicide or adapt, mm-hmm. right? He's a survivor in a lot of ways. And he's also, you know, was raised by a very abusive man who he was afraid of and who I think he really attached to deeply as his only family. And, you know, I was thinking about the way that people process, or I wasn't actively thinking about it. It was just that this is my, 
tendency to co- to create characters based on their past experiences and, and the way that their psychology and personality is built out of that. Like, okay, if 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 you've been a codependent, traumatized child, and then suddenly you're plucked from your home and put into another home, you're going to probably figure out what you need to think in order to survive and be protected in that new family. Aligning with the person in charge would be the natural thing to ingratiate Mm -hmm. yourself Mm -hmm. and then to start relating um, so that that person protects you and sees you as an extension of him. I mean, you wouldn't destroy part of yourself. Marek becomes William's real son to the point where, you know, William is like, He's just, he's more my son than my son was. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's not by accident. I keep coming back to Mark because I had moments with him as a character where he really got on a nerve. Let's put it that way. And yet I still really wanted to know what happened to this kid and how things were going to shake out. And there were times where he would do something or say something that absolutely makes sense. For the character, but, you know, as I just said to you, I mean, I was still a little surprised that he took to Wilhelm as quickly as he did. And everything you said makes absolutely perfect sense, especially in the context of the book, which makes me think about the fact that readers always bring their own experience to anything, any novel, any poem, any piece of narrative nonfiction that they're reading, that that we always bring sort of our own interpretations of the world in. And You know, one of the things that has sort of frustrated me reading the coverage of your earlier books, Eileen and My Year of Rest and Relaxation and Death in Her Hands, and I saw it less with the story collection, Homesick for Another World, is that critics had a really hard time with the characters you create, and especially Eileen, especially the unnamed narrator of My Year of Rest and Relaxation, who you've even said you gave her very specific physiques sort of in response to what critics had been saying about Eileen. And, you know, I've been selling books for a really long time. And part of me is like, well, if you were a man, no one would ever raise any of this. Did any of that inform what you were doing in Lapvona? Or were you just telling a story that you really wanted to read? The lockdown was so jarring and and made me feel so drawn in toward my own heart Mm -hmm. that what other people were doing out in the world or what past criticism had been just seemed like a memory of a dream I once had. And I wanted to write something that was going to take me away, Mm -hmm. literally and metaphorically, literally take me away from sitting with my feelings about the present moment and take me to another place Um, In this time where you couldn't travel at all, I barely left the neighborhood, to play out some imagined incredible drama, you Mm -hmm. know? I mean, I think escapism has its purpose, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so does fiction in general. If we want to live in the biggest world possible, we need everybody's imagination to be there in the ether so we can grab it and follow it. and follow ourselves through this journey beyond what we know. And so that's what I wanted. I wanted a journey into the beyond. The discussions about like all these disgusting characters, blah, 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 blah. I get it because 
um, I'm probably a pretty disgusting person, um, like to the like average reader. I'm interested in disgust. And so my imagination veers toward the disgusting. Um, I find disgust everywhere. It is, it is one of my primary emotions. Just like how I said earlier, I've been stuck in adolescence. I have been stuck in that emotion for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my go-to. Oh, someone does something to offend me. I'm disgusted. Mm-hmm. Oh, I witness something that I perceive as dishonest. That's disgusting. You know, like gross. Uh, oh, over sentimentality. Ew. Um, I'm not that sophisticated of a feeler for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so I'm investigating that in within myself here. Mm-hmm. And um I am doing it, yes, because I'm a writer and, you know, an artist who, like an artist does, investigates themselves in order to break open something deeper, but also um, trying to communicate something. Like I'm trying, we're all just trying to relate and find uh, our place in this weird universe. So I'm just going to be who I am. And I get it if that is unappealing, you know, Um, I don't feel badly (laughs) about that. But I will say this. I feel that Lapvona was the place where I put my disgust down. Writing this book was a physical experience. I mean, I literally had, there's so many moments where I would be activated in a physical way, whatever my adrenaline, my feel like, you know, weird and have to walk away and be like, mm-hmm. whoa, you know, other times I would feel like really excited and, oh, this feels really good. Um, you know, it was a very integrated process into my life, writing this book. It became my whole life for like, a, you know, the, from when I started till when I sent it off. I wanted to, I mean, if there's something that the pandemic taught me in a very self-centered way, I say like one thing I came away with is that like my life can end at any moment. Everyone's can. And maybe, you know, like there's a lesson here in that like I can move on. Like I can grow past what I already know myself to be. And I have so many things I need to grow about. And so I thought like, okay, there's something about the body and how grotesque it is and how vulnerable I feel in the face of it. I'm just like, I'm just going to put it all in here in in an attempt to say goodbye. And there there are other things that I know I still want to say goodbye to, um, like this project that I'm making notes for now is really about, is about some sort of related to discuss, but, you know, sort of the, like the next level past it, because I want to make room for new shit in my life and in my imagination. Is that why you stepped into the third person to tell Lapvona? I mean, the bulk of your work has all been first person. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to step out of being just one person in a book. 
I mean, not that you really are. At any time that you have a first person narrative, you're the writer, you're figuring out that protagonist and you're figuring out everybody else in the book. But I wanted to step backwards into a space of a broader perspective. And I wanted that new experience. You mentioned earlier that Mark is possibly one of the characters that's most closely related to you. Who else do you feel most close to in this list of characters? Grigor, the old man, um, whose journey in the book is really about enlightenment. He's really the only one in the community willing to look at the truth and, and have feelings about it instead of just stuffing it back down or um, trying to take advantage of it. He is the seeker. And actually the scenes in which Grigor meets with Ina, like there's one scene, and I don't think this is a giving away too much, but there's one scene where Grigor goes to confront Ina about something. And she ends up like inviting him in and they smoke weed together. And they have this conversation. That was probably the most fun I've had writing dialogue. And it's not that big of a scene. It was really, it's really just like the subtlety of openness that happens when two people are, you know, sharing an experience, like getting high together. There's something that happens in those conversations where like you are forced to sit back and consider the bigger picture. Yeah, that little exchange was like, I felt like plucked out of something like totally contemporary. And there were a lot of moments in the book that felt like, okay, this is, I know that I'm writing about the medieval period, but the consciousnesses of my characters felt very much of this time. And I really liked that. That's something that I also found myself doing in McGlue, my very first book, which is set in 1850. And I guess part of it is this idea, like when we look back through history and we think about everything that that person, you know, a hundred years ago didn't know, my first instinct is to be like, oh, well, they must have been more pure and less thoughtful. Oh, but that's insane, right? <laughs> like that's that's totally crazy. Pe- people have been complicated and intelligent and inquisitive and delusional since the dawn of time. That's why we're so creative. So I was like, well, I'm just going to think about these people as though they could live next door to me. And, and so they did. And it totally works. It totally works. I could not stop. I've actually, the first time I read the book, I sat, I did it in one go because I didn't want to leave this world that you'd created. And I didn't want to create this landscape, even though there were moments where I was profoundly uncomfortable. But I just sort of handed myself over to you and said, okay, tell me a story. Let's see where we go. Is there anything you miss now that you've left, now that the book is finished? I mean, is there anything you miss from this world? Anyone you miss? I kind of miss Lisbeth, one of the servants in William's Manor. I really grew to love her and her quiet rage. She was such a delicate character. I mean, in most contemporary terms, she's an angry anorectic, you know, <laughs> like um, she finds power in self-denial 
and it and that sets her above everyone else, even while she's a servant, you know, like she's looking for the dignity anywhere she can get it. You know, I really felt for her loss. She was in love with the boy who gets killed, the boy for whom she was the servant and had this really intimate relationship. And then um, here comes Marek, the murderer of her true love. And she has to dote on him and predict his every whim and need. Maybe because she was in that position, I I felt tender toward her, like had a lot of compassion. Like, oh, that must really hurt. The way that she says goodbye to the book um, in the story is so, it's so sad for me. Um, I mean, because she, like, thinking about that, it kind of gives me chills still. So, like, yeah, she stuck with me. Did your character surprise you at all, or did you sort of know how things were going to play out? I mean, Wilhelm, he's very much who he is, but he did have a couple of moments where I was like, huh, this is interesting. I mean, the idea that he's got this new son in Marek, and he's like, oh, no, 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 well, it's it's fine. He's gained a little weight. He looks a little portly. He looks wealthy. He looks like he has power. He looks more to me like my own son than my actual son. You know what surprised me about him is the way that he attempted to change after uh, he remarried. You know, it's almost as though his delusions about everything on earth sort of came back toward him and he tried to convince himself that he was something better than he was and he fails like he can't keep it together but those little moments of trying sort of surprised me I think the character that surprised me the most was Ina to be honest I mean she really could pull anything out of a hat Mm -hmm. I mean she's she's like a sorcerer basically Mm -hmm. and incredibly resourceful which is so fun to write a, a resourceful character because like, you know, when I was doing this first draft, I didn't realize that I was planting all these seeds for Ina to pick up. Yeah, she was kind of the character who in the writing process was like, oh, I know exactly what to do. <laughs> oh my God. That, that thing in chapter one, that's going to become this now. And mm-hmm. you also have been thinking about that. Okay, I need that. And so she was kind of, the god of the book in a lot of ways. Faith has a lot of different levels for a lot of different characters. And, you know, there's Father Barnabas, who is the town priest, but he's essentially sort of whatever Wilhelm wants him to be, because he knows where the power is and he knows where he fits into this. But what does faith look like for you when you're writing? Commitment to the project. It looks like acceptance of whatever is on the page that day, knowing that even if it ends up getting deleted, it's part of the process. It looks like completion, to be honest. I can't, I cannot finish something that I don't believe is destined to exist. Like, I think most of my uh, spiritual beliefs are, are really tied into the experience of creating stories you know, spinning something out of nothing, taking an idea, uh, you know, something that occurs to me one day, understanding that it's important that I should pay attention to it, 
and then dedicating all this time <laughs> believing that there was a reason that I had that bit of inspiration, that it came from an important place and that I need to honor it. Like the book is the thing that's important. The like the way that I feel about it really isn't. It's just what happens when you have to do publicity as you end up talking about yourself. <laughs> okay, I get that. But you are still the person who's creating this world. You're letting these characters do what they need to do. You're making change. It. I mean, you are the god of this world. So you can't really take yourself out of the equation, can you? I mean, I understand that it's not always fun to have to do the promotion part, but you really can't take yourself out of the novel completely, right? Oh, when I'm writing it, I'm not thinking about myself at all. I'm thinking about these characters and and what I don't yet know. I mean, that's basically all I'm doing is I'm trying to forget myself so that I can know something beyond myself. You know, I'm not like writing about my feelings. I mean, I think that's a really easy thing to get wrong when we read fiction, especially books like Eileen in My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which are written from the first person narrative by a woman about a woman. You know, like I'm like, of course, I'm every single one of my characters. I can't, you know, if, if you're writing the words somewhere there, that's you. Let's talk about the landscape for a second, because the landscape here, even though Lapvona obviously is a place that you have invented, it feels very real on the page. And you had to just sit down and, and build this community and this world. Where do you start? I mean, New England obviously has a place in earlier books. New York has a place in earlier books. Um, certainly there's that story in Malibu, which <laughs> I hope people have read that. But can we talk about constructing a community and a, and a village? The geographic landscape the the topography actually was really important and i think that's something that i i tried to think about um i tried to look at lapvona first from a bird's eye view because in i guess an agrarian society um in the late middle ages there was a manor on a hill and then there were farms on uh, on the lower land and um, you know, that got me thinking, well, where's water come from? Oh, how, how would you get from one place to another? So I started thinking about the map. You know, where were people buried? Um, was there a town square? You know, things like that. Uh, I did some research to help me answer those questions. But a lot of the time it was just instinctual and what I needed for the story to make sense. You know, like, okay, so this person's house would be next to this person. Um, Ina's cabin in the woods would be this far away. And, um, you know, Jude's pasture would be at the foot of the mountain on which the manor would sit. You know, the, the story opens with the report of an invasion by bandits. And that is a helpful way to enter a place, is to imagine it being invaded, because that's kind of what you're doing as the writer you're going in and being like, what's in here? Show me all the stuff. Where does so-and-so live? Let's go over there. You know, you're just gonna like, ah. Yeah, I invaded along with the bandits and uh, 
found what I wanted for the story. Are you a linear writer or do you sort of work as you need to and then put everything together? I am so linear. It's annoying. I I can't believe that some people work this way. Like this is how hardwired my brain is that like I could not imagine writing um, something out of order. Like I just couldn't do it. it w- I wouldn't know what it was. You know, sometimes I'll have an inkling um, of some of the language for the ending. That happens to me actually in every novel. I'm like, oh, okay, it, there's these these words in this order. We're just going to put them down there. But those feel more like premonitions than writing, you know, Um, which isn't to say that I don't plan. I plan so much. I do so many outlines and I'm constantly revising the outline as I write. You know, if you, you, you write a couple paragraphs and you discover something, you're like, oh, okay. So when such and such happens later, that's why, you know, now this is, coming together for me or, oh, I've completely misunderstood this, this one turn. Um, or, you know, don't forget that this character has to have this epiphany, you know, like things like that. But I love linearity and I'm also a very, very literal person. Uh, my husband is not, and we often misunderstand each other, which is funny. Um, yeah, I take everything really literally. Are you still writing stories or are you really sticking to novels at this point? I have written a couple, but they just feel like outliers to the bigger picture. I recently realized that I started a new collection, but I've been working on the same, the same story. I'm like maybe 30% through. I don't even know what the story is. It takes place in like the early, maybe in the early seventies in Los Angeles. And it's about an actor. and um, when I got into it a little bit more, I was like, oh, figuring out this story is going to be me figuring out how to write this next short story collection. So it's really hard. Short stories feel like miraculous to me. Yeah, I miss it. The arc of the stories in Homesick for Another World is best described as perfect, just the way everything, the stakes keep going up. And then I I just, I really appreciate that collection very much. So I'm delighted to know you're working on a new one because I love stories. And I'm always amazed when people are like, well, I don't have time for stories. And I'm like, you read stuff on your phone. Like you can read a story standing in line somewhere. (laughs) Like You're waiting to get through, you know, the checkpoint at the airport. You can read a story. And I just, I wish more people would dip in and out like that. So is the story collection the next thing you're working on or is there something else? I think I'm going to be working on this short story collection for like 10 years. I'm not fully, I mean, when, because Lapvona is coming out or, you know, has just come out, it's really hard to focus in the way that you need to um, when you're writing a new book. But I have a couple of projects and one of them is uh, sort of a comedy and I think that was going to be the next one. Wait, sort of a comedy? This sounds really excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, I haven't really figured out the book, but when I hear the tone of it in my mind, comedy is the only word I can really use to describe it. 
Okay, that sounds really cool. Otessa Moshfeg, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Lapvona is out now. Homesick for Another World is the story collection that you may not have read yet, and I really, really think you should. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Hello, readers. Welcome back to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Lapvona. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, and I am joined by my book buddy, Becky. Hello, Becky. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with my recommendation. I chose a book called The Devil and Miss Prim by the wonderful Mr. Paulo Coelho. Uh, this is told in his trademark parable style, and it takes place in a small, sleepy, seedy mountain village. Uh, and the village is visited by a stranger who has a very burning question on his mind uh, that he needs answers to. And the question is, are humans good or evil? Black or white? He just needs to know. It's one or the other. So he's about to put that to the test. So he buries a large sum of gold uh, just outside of the town and informs the villagers that he will reveal the location of the gold if they sacrifice one of their own. So a ever-turning moral compass story begins with each of the characters in this book, but it also allows readers to really take a second look at their own value systems and maybe what they would do in a situation like this. Paulo Coelho tells fables. Uh, his stories transcend time and space and place, and anybody can pick up something out of any of his books. The Devil and Miss Prim is no exception, so... Please make sure to check it out when you stop in. Becky, do you have one for us? Of course I do. <laughs> uh, so the book that I have for you is A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness. Nice, yeah. Yeah, this is a, this is a good one. This, uh, this is the start of the uh, All Souls trilogy. And um, yeah, it tells the story of Diana Bishop, who is studying at Oxford. And uh, she's studying alchemy. And uh, one day she... Picks up a book from the library. Uh, actually, I should say she calls up a book from the library, the depths of the Oxford mm -hmm. Library. And it's just part of her research. It's just another book that she needs to kind of check off the list and see what it has to say and then, you know, move on. She'll revisit if she needs to. Uh, so she takes some notes. She, you know, some things occur and then she puts the book back and doesn't really think anything else of it. Um, but the next day, the entire college is buzzing. Because in the act of bringing up this book, she has awoken the underworld. Demons, vampires, witches, they're all congregating now at Oxford and they all want to talk to her because <laughs> she has pulled up a book that hasn't been seen in decades. And what this book has to say about the underworld and uh, all of that is, uh, yeah, it just becomes a, a huge deal. The interesting thing about Diana is that she is descended from a long and distinguished line of witches, but she doesn't want to be one. And she has pretty much ignored her abilities to this point. So uh, the book is just, it's fantastic because it's really about her uh, discovering her abilities, uh, what she is capable of. But then it also is just, it just starts these questions going about what's going on in the world. Um why is everyone freaking out over this book? Uh, was, uh, you know, a fun thing is she goes back to pull up the book because she's like, listen, you guys are freaking out over nothing here. I'll get it again. It's gone. There's no record of it. So the mysteries just keep piling on and then they start getting answered. 
But um, like I said, this is the first book in the trilogy, the All Souls trilogy, but Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness, just, yeah, definitely pick it up. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. All right, so that's all we have for today. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to and watching Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and, and subscribe to us to give us some support and so you never miss an episode. Um, I am Mark, coming to you from my home store in Cincinnati. I'm Becky. And joined by <laughs> my favorite Becky. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.